Blog Talk Radio. It's been a long road getting from there to here. It's been a long time, but my time is finally here. I can feel the change in the wind right now. Nothing's in my way. Dr. Jess Ormine coming to you from the Center for Bioindividualized Medicine here in southeastern Pennsylvania. And it is a beautiful evening. There are storms outside. There's a major fire about a mile down the street. So if the whole thing goes off, you know what happened. <laughs> okay. Tonight we're going to have a really, really um, interesting show. Uh, we've done parts of it before, but I thought it would be good to revisit the brain wall. Uh, this is a lecture that I did for the doctors at um, the uh, MABIM con- conference in uh, Philadelphia in January. I um, remixed it and uh, made it a little bit more understandable. And um, I figured that today would be a great day to kind of let you know how to look at anxiety, depression, neurotransmitters, OCD, ADD, and kind of all where it comes from. So that's why we have the brain wall, anxiety, depression, and neurotransmitters explained. I was going to make it a lot longer of a um, of a um, title, but uh, <laughs> I couldn't do it. By the way, uh, several people have said that they can't find the links to the show and they can't find the link to the PDF. Uh, if you're on Facebook or you can get to Facebook, go to Facebook, and in the search bar, just type in Dr. Jess Armine. Okay, and that will take you to my my um, Facebook page, and the first entry there on the Facebook page, you'll see my face, and you'll see the two PDF two links, one for the show, and one for the PDF, and I'll give everybody just a little uh, couple minutes to kind of get their hands on the PDF. I did work very hard on this one; it is colorful too. Okay, I will let you know right off the bat that my son Jesse is the one who digitalized this. And at the end, I'll let you know how to get your very own brain wall for your um, for your wall if you wanted it. Um, actually, it is um, at www.designyourvictory.com. That's designyourvictory, all one word, dot com. Uh, my son Jesse he does a lot of artistry, and uh, you should kind of look around his website. And wow. I'm uh, pretty impressed considering he uh, taught himself everything. So hopefully people have the uh, PDF in their hands. And um, remember, I'm sitting here in front of the 
in front of the chat room. So if you have uh, questions, please uh, type it in on the chat. In a little while, we'll be able to uh, talk if anybody has any questions. Okay, and I'll give the number out in just a few minutes. Uh, that number, just in case anybody's interested, is 646-595-2277. So when I fin finish the lecture portion of this, if anybody would like to ask a question, I'll be taking questions. Okay, here we go, the brain wall. Uh, page two, the brain wall help you understand the neurotransmitters and their functions the relationship between different parts of the brain and their function and dysfunctions, the basis of ADD, OCD, anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, and the like. And the reason this was created was to make you informed and empowered. Okay, it's not a secret. Uh, neurotransmitters and neurology is not a secret. As a matter of fact, it's kind of logical and fairly easy to follow. If you go to page three, that is the brain wall itself. And um, I'd like to stop here and give you a little bit of a history of the brain wall um, and why it's called the brain wall. Uh, when visiting uh, one of the integrative uh, psychiatrists that we know, uh, she would teach her patients about the brain and various parts of it so they would help manage their own medicines. It's like a two-hour consultation she does, and she spends a lot of time teaching them uh, the different parts of the brain, what it does, and so forth. Well, Jesse and I attended one of these lectures and kind of wrote everything on these big pieces of brown paper, and we called them the sacred scrolls. Okay, so one day I kind of looked at the scrolls and I said, you know, I can make this a bit better so it makes everything understandable. And I actually brought it to my office, and with uh, <laughs> colored pencils and magic markers, I drew everything on my wall because I was doing consultations at the time, and I could look at the wall and teach from it as I was talking to people on the phone. Uh, one of the um, reps from uh, the Neuroscience Corporation uh, came in one day because um, the head of research and development wanted to uh, meet my son, Jesse, and uh, he looked at the wall and he said, what's that? And I explained it. He looked at me and said, this is it. This is it. I said, this is what? This is what? He said, this is it. It was the connection that they were looking for to teach their doctors um, from the basis of neurology, neurotransmitters, and how they affect the individual and in a graphic representation. And uh, so he took pictures of it and invited me to the pre-conference dinner that they have before these big old conferences. And I walked in. I didn't know he took, I know he took pictures, but I walked in because I was invited. I sat down and he threw the slides on the board and said, oh, Dr. Armine's going to uh, lecture. And I said, oh, good. You gave me 37 seconds. Uh, that's about two seconds more than I require for any kind of lecture. So I just started talking about the brain wall and uh, it kind of took off. Okay. So anyway, I'll go through this piece by piece, so don't don't, don't uh, get crazy. Okay, first thing I want to talk about are neurotransmitters themselves. Like, what are they? We always talk about neurotransmitters, and why are they important? Well, let's look on page five. <clears throat> this is a picture of two nerves talking to one another. Okay, and in case you don't already know, and I'm, I'm very sure all of you do know, is that nerves don't actually touch one another. They're not actually connected. There is a space between them called the synapse. And the little circles you're seeing on the bottom that are going from the presynaptic neuron to the postsynaptic neuron, in other words, a message is coming down. You see the arrow for the nerve impulse 
and to get that nerve impulse or that message across the cleft to the other nerve so it can continue along is the job of these chemicals called neurotransmitters. Okay, so that's where you get the word from. And you can see that these little neurotransmitters go from one end of the nerve to the other where there's a receptor. And the receptor, when it's filled in by the proper <clears throat> chemical, will do something, okay, without getting into agonizing, antagonizing, and yada, 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 yada. Basically, when you fill in a receptor, it does something, okay, that the body wants it to do. That's why it's there. That's the way God made you. Okay? So, neurotransmitters divided into excitatory neurotransmitters and inhibitory neurotransmitters. And anybody who's been treated by me or has been listening to my yammerings over the past couple of years notice that I use the term excitation and anxiety and excitation and OCD. I, I kind of use them interchangeably because there are certain terms like anxiety, OCD, whatever, that have a stigma attached to them. You know, it kind of tells everybody you can't handle your life, which is the you know, the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Okay, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. I'm sorry, that's um, Groucho Marx. Anyway, um, excitation is exactly that. It's excitation. Okay, there's too much uh, irritation, if you will, in the nervous system. But we need excitatory neurotransmitters so we can wake up, pay attention, okay, um, focus on tasks. Okay, so... The excitatory neurotransmitters are things like epinephrine and norepinephrine, which are adrenaline and noradrenaline, which come from the adrenal gland, specifically the adrenal medulla. Okay, and you can see here from the chart that if it's low, uh, the epinephrine or norepinephrine, you're going to get low focus, low, you're going to get fatigue, weight gain, low motivation, low mood, stuff like that. On the other hand, if it's high, you're going to get trouble sleeping, anxiety, tremors, hypertension, that feeling like you've had too much caffeine, uh, tremors, irritability, and the like. I'm going to go to the bottom of the next one. PEA is phenylethylamine. Okay, when it's low, again, you get the low focus, low attention, and ADD. And truly, a true ADD person, a true person with attention deficit disorder, has low phenylethylamine and or low norepinephrine. Other people who have ADD or the old ADHD types where they have hyperactivity, their minds are moving so fast that they have the attention span of a gnat, okay? And frankly, it's the same set of symptoms, okay, from different causations. That's why for some people, the medicines act miraculously and some people medicines blow the back of their heads off, okay? Because that's what happens when you diagnose via symptoms instead of via root causes. Of course, even... Uh, something that helps you focus can get too much, and if you have too high phenylethylamine, you can have sleep difficulties. That's the person whose mind is running, and they might have anxiety or that kind of excitation. Glutamate is real important, okay? High glutamate can cause cell death, brain damage, and seizures. When it's high enough, it'll do that. High glutamate, uh, first of all, glutamate is made from glutamine from your gut, and we always talk about the genes, right? Because God forbid we shouldn't talk about genes. Okay, we're talking usually about the GAD or the glutamate decarboxylase genes, or what I like to call the general anxiety disorder genes. That is the gene that encodes an enzyme that turns glutamate into GABA, which is inhibitory. Okay? When you have high glutamate, let me tell you something. It's like somebody threw itching powder down your back. Okay? 
I saved dopamine for last for a reason. Dopamine is a funny neurotransmitter. And I mean funny, strange, not funny, haha. Okay? When you have extremely low dopamine, you get Parkinsonian type symptoms. Okay? When you have just low dopamine, you can have a depression, a depression like syndrome called anhedonia or a hedonism, okay, which is a lack of joy. Now, here's the difference. Uh, I'm sure that you've all had friends who've been a little depressed, you know, break up with a boyfriend, girlfriend. Uh, you take them out for a meal. You get, you know, can cheer them up. Usually you can get them out of it, okay? They may go home and be a little depressed again, but uh, generally speaking, you can get them out of it, and uh, that's usually a serotonin thing. But when somebody has real low dopamine, that's the person who just simply doesn't care. They have no joy. Even the things that made them happy before don't make them happy now, Okay. Dopamine in and of itself is your neurotransmitter of satiety, your neurotransmitter of reward. So when you eat something and you feel good and you go, oh, that's dopamine. Okay, for those ladies out there who love to shop, one of my favorite stories is, you know, you go to this store, there's three items left, uh, and there are about 100 ladies looking for that item, and you barrel in there just kind of, working your way through the crowd, leaving dead bodies behind you, and you grab one of the items, you pay for it, and you're walking to the car with that item in your hand with that big old smile on your face, that's dopamine, okay? But funny, when dopamine gets a bit high, <clears throat> it can cause paranoia, okay? It, the excitation will cause paranoia. It can cause hallucinations. And when it gets super high, it's autism, I'll give you some numbers. I'm just going to pull them out of the hat. If 170 is high, then around 250, you're kind of looking at um, paranoia. About 350, 400, you're looking at hallucinations. And all of my autistic children, every single one of them, have dopamines in the 600s. And I have seen as high as 783. Excuse me while I drink some water. <clears throat> highly alkaline water, of course. So when dopamine is very high, you're talking about an extremely potent excitatory neurotransmitter. So when the excitation is so high, the frank autistic kid is just not of this earth. It can't form memories. They're just not here because their brain is so quote-unquote on fire, which is why one, one of the few medicines that have been approved for the treatment of autism has been an, anti as an antipsychotic that brings down dopamine. Okay, uh, you'll notice here I wrote in developmental delay, poor intestinal function, craving, cell death, psychosis, all from too much excitation. Okay. Now, on the other hand, you have inhibitory neurotransmitters, things that slow everything down so you can relax. Serotonin is the one that we're the most familiar with because you hear it all the time, serotonin reuptake inhibitors and the like. Low serotonin can result in anxiety insomnia, depression, uncontrolled appetite for carbohydrates. Those people who are compulsive overeaters. Okay, one more time one more time with the water. Or anybody who craves carbohydrates is looking for a shot of serotonin. That's where that book, you know, Potatoes for Prozac came from. And unexplained gastrointestinal symptoms. Okay, if you were all here, I'd ask you to raise your hands, but I'll just tell you that Serotonin is the main neurotransmitter of the enteric nervous system. That is the nervous system that runs your gastrointestinal tract. 
High serotonin will give you road rage, hot flashes, serotonin syndrome, irritability. Uh, I got to tell you something right right now before anybody gets into it. Uh, you know that I treat serotonin by utilizing amino acids like 5-hydroxytryptophan. And before anybody gets on the phone and starts yelling and screaming, you cannot get serotonin syndrome by taking amino acids. I've done the research. There is not one example in God's green earth that makes serotonin syndrome come from the utilization of amino acids. Okay, serotonin syndrome is a life-threatening disorder. Okay, and it's done by people overdosing on SSRIs and stuff like that. Any amino acids that you do not utilize are changed into glucose by a mechanism called gluconeogenesis. Our body's made that way, okay? You can't get serotonin syndrome. So even if the numbers are high and you're looking at your neurotransmitter test, okay, you're not going to get serotonin syndrome by the utilization of an amino acid precursor. 5-HIAA is the breakdown product of serotonin, and if it's very high, you can have intestinal complaints and um, low, basically the same thing as low serotonin. Taurine is an inhibitory neuromodulator. Okay, kind of think of it as the guy who supports the inhibitory neurotransmitters. The thing is that um, low taurine can give you panic attacks, cynicism, pessimism, arrhythmias, and high taurine can make you too excited. So why do I talk about taurine, okay? Uh, well, think about Red Bull, monster drinks. The first ingredient there is taurine. And as you know, in the United States, the first ingredient means that you have the most of it, the second grade, the second most, third, and so forth and so on. Why are they putting so much taurine into these monster drinks? Not to wake you up, believe it or not, because taurine in high doses acts like lidocaine, which is an antiarrhythmic. They're trying to protect your heart. So, <laughs> so here's your real, you know... This always makes me laugh because, you know, you're drinking something so you can wake up, okay? And you're also drinking something that's going to calm down your heart because the danger here is that this is going to put your heart into an arrhythmia. So I guess that's why Red Bull gives you wings. Um, it always looks, when they do that, it always looks like an angel going away, so I'm not even going to mention it. On the next um, slide, we have GABA, gamma-mutabutyric acid. GABA is the body's main inhibitory neurotransmitter. References right there if you like to look at it. Okay, uh, GABA is how you calm yourself. If you have enough GABA, you can calm and sleep. If you don't have enough anxiety, insomnia, tremors. Now, GABA is kind of interesting. Uh, those things that raise GABA, alcohol, benzodiazepines, things like Valium, Ativan, yada, 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 marijuana, what they do is they don't actually supply GABA. They stimulate the GABA-A receptor you see there. And that GABA-A receptor is very much like the McDonald's off the highway, you know, fast on, fast off, okay? So that you get this blast of GABA, then it goes away, all right? So think about it. If you have kind of a normal nervous system and you're having a bad day, you know, your mom, you've got three kids, everybody got on your nerves in the morning, you go to work, everybody got your nerves in work, and they're cutting you off on the way back. You come home, you say, I've had it. I'm going to have a glass of wine or whatever it happens to be. And you have a glass of wine, you release a, a bolus or a blast of GABA, and your nervous system just simply calms down to its normal state, and then mom's having a good time. I'm not advocating alcohol use. I'm just making an example, people. Okay, on the other hand, if you have a highly 
irritated or excited nervous system. Okay, this is the kind of person who's walking around and they will drink alcohol, okay, and for a short period of time they'll feel better. But that period of time doesn't last very long, so boom, they get the excitation again, so they need more alcohol and more and more or more drugs or more benzodiazepines, and that's where the addictive quality comes from. On the other hand, there are supplements out there, uh, specifically phenylated GABAs, which are known as phenobutes, okay, that will supply the, the, act, the brain actually with GABA. Most of the GABAs on the market, PharmaGABA and the other things, are not phenylated, so they don't cross the blood-brain barrier. Okay, and, and if you are feeling better on those, on those products, that's evidence of a leaky blood-brain barrier. Okay, but in most people, it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. Okay, um, the phenylated GABAs do. They're under the classifications of phenobutes. There's two that I know of, and I know I've gotten people yelling and screaming at me on the Internet, but they go by beta-phenyl gamma butyric acid, which is what you see if you buy off the Internet. And, you know, that's the one that if you read the studies about it or the, or the stories, they seem to have the same kind of withdrawal problems as Valium and so forth. But there's another one that people tell me it's just a nomenclature thing, but guess what? I don't believe them, okay, is the 4-amino-3-phenylbutyric acid, which is um, phenotropic and cavernase. I'm sorry for mentioning an actual name. <clears throat> but these guys get through the blood-brain barrier. I've been using it for, for like two decades now, okay? And uh, they hang on to also the GABA-B receptor, which kind of opens up those GABA gates longer, okay? So it's non-addictive, and you can give a person with a lot of excitation uh, phenylated GABA and really help them a lot while you're fixing other portions. So think of excitatory inhibitory this way. Think of the, think of down New Orleans, the levees, okay? If you have no levees, no inhibition, all the water just comes on through. But if you have a nice built-up levee, only a certain amplitude of wave will get through. This is why, if you have a good balance, if you're sitting right now, and I ask everybody who feels their butt, okay, everybody will raise their hand, but before they do that, they've got to shake a little bit to, see, to feel their butt because as they've been sitting on it, okay, the amplitude and number of impulses has decreased below the inhibitory or below the ability of the levee to let the water through. Okay, so when you're talking about neurotransmitters, you're talking about balance, okay, between inhibitory and excitatory. Now we get to the areas of the brain and their functions and associated symptoms. This is where the brain wall really puts it all together. I, I love this thing, okay? Uh, it's, color, it's color-coded, so the front part is the prefrontal cortex, whose function is attention, judgment, impulse control, critical thinking, empathy, and it continues to grow until you're about age 25. Dysfunctionally, distractibility, impulsivity, poor judgment, laziness, tardiness, and let's face it, everything one calls a teenager. Okay, and that's why teenagers act so goofy, because they don't have a well-functioning prefrontal cortex. Just so you know, ADD tends to live in this area, and the, and the neurotransmitters that run this area, dopamine, epinephrine, and norepinephrine. As we go along, we have the anterior shifter. This is where you have cognitive flexibility, your ability to go with the flow. But if you happen to be very stubborn, hold grudges, have obsessions or compulsions, addictions, and you can read the list as well as I can, 
Okay, uh, that's where you find dysfunction in this area. OCD and ODD live here. That's oppositional defiance disorder, sort of like OCD on on steroids. Okay, serotonin is the main neurotransmitter that controls this area, as you might guess, because it's an inhibitory neurotransmitter. The basal ganglia. This is where anxiety lives. Okay, and you can have. There's kind of two sides of the basal ganglia, and I, I, I kind of simplified it that you had a left and a right side, and one is more externally anxious and one's more internally anxious. Okay, the externally anxious person is an individual that easily is screaming at you. They have homicidal thinking. Uh, they're the ones that are cutting you off in, tra- in traffic. The internal anxiety types are the ones that have suicidal thinking, self-mutilation, basically internalize everything. Okay, this is your brain's idol, your ability to stay in the moment. So when you have panic attacks, pessimism, conflict avoidance, and the like, and especially real tense neck and shoulders, okay, uh, this is where the problem is. And guess who runs this area? As you might think, GABA. The thalamic limbic system, this is where depression lives, okay? This is where your emotional filter is. This is where your, you feel your memories, okay? This is, this is the area where you tag the importance of various memories. We've all had things in our life that this is more important than that. This is where you tag that as being important and not important. That's how it co- colors your experiences. It, uh, this is also the area where the... Where, um, the not part of the nasal, I'm sorry, I can't think of it right the second. When you smell, okay, this area is directly connected to it, and it sets off uh, a series of events and allows you to relive certain emotions because uh, there's a physical connection between the olfactory area and this. When this is dysfunctional, you get depression, sleep problems, decreased sex drive, social isolation, uh, increased negative thinking, and this is a serotonin construct, okay? Uh, the drawings are not ultra exact. Uh, they're made to be representative. The temporal lobe, which is also the base of the brain, which looks an awful lot like the cerebellum here, but no matter. Okay, this is uh, a real important area, okay? The left side is your, your executive side, the side that kind of makes sense. Your right side is where you see facial recognition, and, you know, it's more the softer uh, artistic side. And... Interestingly, that on the, when you have left temporal lobe dysfunction, you're going to have aggression, fighting, a person who's very sensitive to slights and so forth. Interestingly, there's a lot of studies out there that say that abused children become abusers and are aggressive. Okay, and I'll give yourself five seconds to figure out why. And yes, I used the time to drink some water. Okay, that's because most abusers are right-handed. And when you're hitting somebody upside the head, you're hitting them upside the left side of the head, causing chronic left temporal lobe dysfunction, hence the aggression. If you have right temporal lobe dysfunction, uh, you're going to have difficulty recognizing faces, decoding voices, that kind of stuff. Memory, bipolar disorder, psychosis, all live in this area. And um, what you're seeing on the bottom is what is sometimes used for memory, like ginkgo biloba, um, acetylcholine, uh, raising dopamine, bipolar disease, um, and the utilization of anticonvulsants and GABA, and psychosis is use of antipsychotics. <clears throat> when I talk about the medicines, you have to realize that I'm, I'm, I don't advocate or not advocate medicines. I advocate people being safe. 
Okay, if you understand how an anticonvulsant works or why it works for somebody, there are alternative medicine means of mimicking that. In other words, what does an anticonvulsant do but prevent the free flow of ions to in and out of a nerve? Okay, when there only should be a leakage, it kind of just flows and the nerve um, fires off. Okay, I'm being very, very basic. Okay, so if you have somebody with really, really leaky cells and have electrolyte disturbances, you can fix that. Now, I, will, I won't pull them off the anticonvulsants, but the indicator that the anticonvulsant act as, acted as a mood stabilizer tells me what's wrong in the physiology and what I need to do. If I know what's, what's wrong physiologically with someone now, and I'm going to tell everybody right now, I don't pull people off medicines. <clears throat> I never have, okay? What I do is I balance the body, and the prescriber is the one who will bring them down on the medicines. Remember that the prescriber is the one who's the expert in the utilization of medications. And I've had tons of patients where I've balanced the neurotransmitter system, and they went back to their or I I talked to their doctor. They went back to the doctor and said, look, I'd like to try coming off some of the medicines. And they brought them down very, very slow. And, you know, they may have been on six, seven medicines. And a year later, they were on one medicine, okay, at a minimal dose. Remember, psychiatrists, especially a polypharmacist, they don't, they have to prescribe numerous medicines. They don't like it because they have to manage the medicines and the side effects. So if you can fix what's wrong with somebody and they can safely bring someone down, okay, to minimal dosage that doesn't have side effects. They're happy people, okay? So you can work. I do work with my medical colleagues, okay? I think some of them are a little strange, but, hey, we won't speak of it on the, on the air like this. Anyway, so we're talking about uh, the temporal lobe. Okay, um, I want to let you know how we got to where we are, uh, the history of bioindividualized medicine. Uh, this, kind of, this kind of thinking started back in the 70s be, because people were always wondering about the relationship between the mind and the body. We've all heard of psychosomatic diseases. Okay, that was kind of, you know, looking at people and kind of looking at them and say, you have psychosomatic disease. But have you ever heard of somatopsychic disease? Everybody's shaking their head no, but you should be shaking your head yes if anybody's ever heard of PMS. Okay, that's the body controlling the mind, okay? And anybody who's been the down, who's gotten the downstream effect of that in the family can attest that that can be a bad thing sometimes, okay? So, in 1975, next page, uh, the beginning of this whole thought pattern was something called psychoneuroimmunology. Somebody named Robert Adler and Nicholas Cohen actually demonstrated the relationship between psychiatric symptoms or syndromes and immune function. It's the first time anybody ever put it together. And PNI, psychoneuroimmunology, was a pretty big deal back then. Okay, and for those of you who are scientifically oriented, I put a few um, studies there. Next, there was the neuroendoimmune supersystem. This was created by a very brilliant man, Gottfried Kellerman, PhD, uh, at the Neuroscience Corporation. And, you know, I do my testing there. Dr. Kellerman actually said, hmm, you know, I know that PNI makes sense, but how about the hormones? How do it? How are they talking to one another? Okay, and if you look at the next slide, really, he discovered with other people, of course, Dr. Vajani, you know, a whole mess of other people, that the nervous system has, I'm sorry, uh, neurotransmitters as their biomarkers. The endocrine system has hormones as their biomarkers. The immune system has cytokines and chemokines as their biomarkers. But guess what? Each system had the receptors 
for the other system's biomarkers. And by constant chatter, they would be able to achieve homeostasis through consideration of all three systems. So the systems that used to be considered linearly were now considered together. Okay, and without all the, the mumbo-jumbo on this page, the next page, which is page 19, shows you how it really works. Okay, you have three Cub Scouts chattering to one another, and the neuroendoimmune systems are in constant conversation. Okay, and I, I think that this poster that was done by the Neuroscience Corporation <laughs> accurately describes that because I have been a Boy Scout leader since God's been a Boy Scout. And if you get three Cub Scouts in a tent, there's only two ways of getting them to shut up. One, gas. Two, an explosive device. Okay, and as soon as they wake up, they pick up right where they left off. We're talking about kids with energy, okay? But they're constantly chattering to one another. So the neurological system, the endocrine system, and the immune system constantly chatter to one another. And that means that if you make one dysfunctional, the others will become dysfunctional. And this is where the concentration on microbial issues as affecting the neurological system and the hormonal system came about. And that's why the studies that are being done now, uh, like by Brian Fallon, who's an MD at Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center, uh, showed that recalcitrant schizophrenia, which means schizophrenia that's recalcitrant to every medicine out there, was secondary to Lyme disease. And he treated Lyme disease, got very high cure rates. Okay, there's, uh, there's evidence out there that ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, has its roots. It's not just Lyme, it's other other microbes, okay, PANDAS, as you well know, pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disease secondary to strep, okay, is one way that children's neurological systems are are thrown right out of whack and given psychosis in the presence of the strep toxin. Okay, they don't even call it that anymore. They call it PANS, okay, pediatric acute neuropsychiatric syndrome because they know there's other microorganisms that will do this. And I guess you guys may not know that there's an adult form that's more chronic, Okay, we talk about fluoroquinolone toxicity causing all kinds of neurological problems and other problems too, but it's not just the fluoroquinolones. There's a ton of other medications that do the same thing. Okay, and it all depends on your um, genetic preconstructs and so forth. So the next permutation was created by Sean and myself, and we called it bioindividualized medicine, which took the complexities of epigenetics, methylation, and nutrigenomics the word nutrigenomics means optimizing the epigenetic system or the um, genetic pathways via nutrition, took neuroendoimmunology, took an understanding of mitochondrial function, and the basis of cell wall integrity, paying attention to cell wall integrity, not, and not fixing it by mistake, but fixing it by intention, realizing that if we considered all these points, we pretty well didn't miss too many things, okay? Uh, mitochondrial function especially, uh, that was a very big group effort. You know, I can tell you a, a couple of years ago that Sean, in a space of 20 minutes, I wanted to shoot him, found all the polymorphisms, I'm sorry, the genes that were associated with the electron transport chain in the mitochondria to give you your energy, okay? I discovered how to fix it, okay? Uh, ben Lynch, I... <laughs> I knew how to fix it, but Ben Lynch told me why. You know, he actually woke me up one day and said, I found it. I'm like, that and found out why. And Sterling Hill, with that enormous heart of hers, took a lot of uh, floxy 
23 andmes with their permission let us reran them so that we'd have a database so we could see where the commonalities were this was a group effort it wasn't just me I'd love to tell you that I discovered everything but uh, I want to name something after myself you know Hashimoto's got his thyroiditis one of these days okay but the idea of bioindividualized medicine was to take it's the next step is to take neuroendoimmunology and include all the other parameters that would allow someone to get sick and once you found that you could figure out how to make them well so in balancing neurotransmitters now we're going full circle back to what we came in here for okay I want to let you know that neurotransmitter imbalances can cause in part or in full Everything you've been thinking about, anxiety, depression, ADD, ADHD, OCD, ODD, schizophrenia, and a whole array of mood and thought disorders. And let's not forget that neurotransmitters run other systems like the enteric nervous system, the gut, and the thermogenic system. Okay, has anybody anybody know what they put women on who have hot flashes? Well, yes, they use hormone replacement therapy, but they're also often placed on SSRIs. And not because of the depressive component, but because the upgrading or the increasing of serotonin at the synapse actually stabilizes the thermogenic system. Okay, so guess what? Fixing hot flashes ain't no thing. So balancing neurotransmitters can result in better mood, better sleep, improving brain fog, okay, increased energies, and a better life. So how do we go about doing this? Well, you really have to consider all the parameters of bioindividualized medicine. Um, if you consider all the parameters of if you use the genes as pointers, if you use the genetics as they should be used, understanding the polymorphisms and the relationship to oxidative stress and so forth, not like I was talking about last week and people taking little pieces of it and saying, ooh, we're going to pick out these eight SNPs and just create a product line next to it. Okay, uh, you know, I feel about such things, so I'm, not, I'm going to get off my soapbox. Discovering the root causes identifying the downstream effects because you know when you've got Lyme or something you have it for a long time it does damage okay if you just kill the bug if you just kill the microbe you're not going to fix what the microbe did unless you look for it and you try and fix it by intention you notice I keep saying by intention okay uh, first principle is can I pronounce this primum non nocere oh that's not good Okay, first, do no harm, okay? <laughs> I think we all should for medications, okay? <laughs> Please do this for me. Every time a medication commercial comes on, close your eyes and just listen. You're going to hear things like, if you take this medicine, your left toe is going to fall off. You and your family are going to die. We're going to come get you and shoot you down. No, 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 no. <laughs> okay. Then you open your eyes and you see all these flowing, nice, beautiful things. That's because psychologists realize that you, pay, you believe more what you see than what you hear. Okay, so they get away by telling you all the side effects, okay, in your ears, but show you these beautiful things with your eyes. So don't be don't be fooled by it, okay? Um, you've got to treat the body as a whole, not just the genes, not just the neurotransmitters, not just the fill in the blank, okay? You have to engage in bioterrain therapy or what we call foundational therapy, okay? Because guess what? You have to fix the body and let it and give it what it needs to heal itself that's hence the reason for phospholipids digestive enzymes fixing leaky gut you know uh, going after the oxalates and so forth and so on and some of the treatments that we use specifically for 
balancing neurotransmitters uh, have names like targeted amino acid therapy, neuroadaptogenic amino acid therapy, and utilization of cofactors or coenzymes, uh, people who do a lot of uh, work with uh, trace minerals, that's what you're going to see there. Okay, supporting enzyme function, balancing and counterbalancing the neurotransmitters appropriately, and a whole host of things that have to be done if you bother to listen, if you bother to listen to the patient, look at your testing, and do things in the proper order, the body will heal because that's the way it's made. So let me show you a case study. Okay, uh, some people have seen this before, some, but I'm going to repeat it. Okay, this is my little eight-year-old girl who had uh, came to me with hallucinations. And she had auditory, olfactory, that's smell and visual hallucinations. Mom thought she needed Erlen glasses, and she also complained of a bad gut. Okay, uh, we, I asked the standard work to be done and for her to come back if they didn't find anything wrong, and they didn't. Okay. By the way, Erlen syndrome, for those people who don't know what Erlen syndrome is, is something called scotopic sensitivity syndrome. Um, this syndrome is a person who can't handle all the frequencies of light coming into their eyes, and they have visual distortions. You can go to that website, erlen.com, okay, and uh, it has lots of great explanations. Uh, kids who have visual distortions have ADD and have all kinds of issues of sometimes very easily treated by using um, these glasses with certain tints on them. Okay, I, I can tell you that my son Jesse, who is who exceeded me intellectually when he was 14, a little less OB. Anyway, uh, exceeded me intellectually when he was 14. Okay, when he was in deep in his uh, disease, uh, his ability to read was taken away. And uh, his um, his integrative psychiatrist, who's got to be one of the um, um, one of the most brilliant women in the world, um, asked him a couple of questions one day and realized that he had Erlen syndrome. And we did in fact go to the practitioner, and by and by got the proper glasses with the tints and the yada yada. Anyway, the day he put those glasses on, he was able to see again. What was going on? It was all the words were jumping around. This stabilized that, and from that point forward, he got his associate's degree. He went and got his bachelor's degree. He became the nature director of a Boy Scout camp for six seasons. And he also published research as an undergraduate that is published in scientific peer-reviewed journals. I think I'm dealing with an intelligent man, okay? And, of course, he's, he does all the... Um, the graphic artistry that we've already mentioned. Okay, so anyway, if you uh, ever want to look at something, look at Erlen syndrome. Put it in the back of your brain. You never know when you're going to need it. Okay, uh, of course, we looked at the young lady's uh, polymorphisms. Here, you're looking at the SOD, superoxide dismutase, um, and uh, TON1, which is specific for organophosphates, difficulty in metabolizing these guys, and the individual lived in a farming community. Uh, looking at the NAT2, which is the acetylation pathway, you have to suspect that the person has difficulties metabolizing aldehydes. And if she has yeast, the yeast is going to produce a ton of acetylaldehyde. Okay, and that's going to irritate the heck out of the brain. That's why. In the 80s, it was don't feed the yeast, don't feed the yeast, don't feed the yeast. Okay, because yeast was blamed on MS and every other neurological disease you can think of. Well, this is the reason. You couldn't metabolize aldehydes. On the next page, we all know about COMT. That is not being able to break down uh, catecholamines. And no, I won't do my cat imitation because I blew out, um, blew out speakers when I said, always remember the first three letters, C-A-T, and I went, Row! 
Okay, and then I woke up some baby in England, and everybody was upset with me, so I won't do my cat imitation. Anyway, uh, the COMT predisposes someone to excitotoxicity because you can't break down your excitatory neurotransmitters. And the GAD enzymes, as I mentioned before, have difficulty in breaking glutamate into GABA. If you research these, you'll see a lot of references to serious mental illnesses. Okay, that isn't a given but I do notice that the more reds that I have here in the GADs, the higher the probability that you can get a more serious mental illness. But I will tell you, and listen close, that if you want to know if this is going to befall you, you look at your family history. Okay, If there's a lot of uh, mental illness in the family history, the way to treat this is to get at the root causes and stop the traffic in these pathways. Okay, And then you won't express. All right? So... There are no pills to fix COMT. There are no pills to fix GAD, okay? The way you do it is taking the traffic out of the pathways so that these enzymes can work the way that they're supposed to. That's the way it's done, people. Don't let anybody tell you different. Okay, here's a scientific study talking about the association between glutamic GAD and anxiety and um, major depression and I figured I'd throw that in for those people who are scientifically oriented. Next page, FUT2 and IGA. This is a little bit about B12 and uh, maybe contribution to imbalances in the gut microbiome. Um, I only put the IGA here, but uh, she also had IgG and IgE SNPs, which meant that to me that if she had leaky gut syndrome, which she had, she was going to produce a ton of immunoglobulins, especially a lot of histamine. Okay, MTHFR, I'm not going to belabor the point, but I will tell you that there are a lot of MTHFR genes out there, okay? There are about 50. And in this particular version of Sterling's uh, app, I think they measured 15, okay? And Sterling always said, if all of them are positive, you've got a suicidal person on your hands, okay? But no matter how you look at it, okay, this that MTHFR does one thing and kind of one thing only. It, t- it takes... 5-10-methylene-tetrahydrofolate and turns it into 5-methyl-tetrahydrofolate. When I say something that fast, it's meant to be ignored, okay? But the more difficulty you might have in the methylation pathway will affect things north, south, east, and west. The number of polymorphisms gives you an indicator of how fragile the pathway is. How do you fix it? Not by throwing 5-methylfolate at somebody, okay, but getting the traffic out of the pathway again, okay? Gee, I keep saying that. Must be true. Okay, mitochondria, this is, uh, this is that conglomeration of Ben Lynch, myself, uh, Sean Bean, and Sterling. Okay, the first complex, which is represented by all those reds there, is NADH ubiquione oxidoreductase, NDUFS. If you have a lot of polymorphisms here and have a lot of oxidative stress, as represented by the GSSG, which is oxidized glutathione, when it's all used up, it gets stuck in that pathway and doesn't allow the electron donors in so you can't produce your energy. Okay? A lot of times you can think about this conceptually, but you start seeing a pattern that there's a lot of polymorphisms in the NDUFSs, which is the first complex. Okay? Uh, You have a setup for people who cannot produce their energies. That may be chronic fatigue or so forth. Okay? And also, if there's a lot of... if you're unable to get rid of the oxidative stress, okay, it's another indicator uh, that the person is either producing a ton of oxidative stress or it just hasn't been treated correctly. Okay, there's a lot to be thinking about. 
Okay, so the polymorphisms in this case indicated area, probable issues in the areas of neurotransmitters, leaky gut, aldehyde metabolism, methylation, and mitochondrial dysfunction. Okay, this is just what the genes, you know, hinted me at. Okay, uh, so I decided to do urinary neurotransmitter testing. Okay, so for those people who are going to argue with me, here's the common arguments that against the use of urinary neurotransmitter assessments. What I usually hear, there's no peer-reviewed research supporting their use. Nonsense. Okay, the, the measurements do not represent the central nervous system. Ah, that's absolutely correct. Okay, the numbers you're seeing do not represent just the central nervous system. They represent the peripheral nervous system. But then again, if you take a serum test, a blood test, you're going to get the same problem. Okay, the only way to get an actual reading of is to do a lumbar puncture and get cerebral spinal fluid or take a piece of the brain out. Now, I know there's some people that love to take a piece of the brain out, but guess what? You're not going to do that on a regular basis. So they constantly tell me there's no evidence of the efficacy in the diagnosis and treatment of various disorders utilizing urinary neurotransmitter testing. Well, I tell you, the urinary or serum neurotransmitter testing are biomarkers. They give you indicators as to the balance of inhibition and excitation. Okay, so when you use that with history, whether you treat pharmaceutically or nutraceutically, it doesn't matter. It gives you a pointer on how to best help that person. How many of you out there have had any kind of neuropsychiatric condition where the doctor said, oh, let's give you this? Okay, it's not working. Oh, let's double it. Okay, four weeks later. Uh, let's change it to this. Four weeks later, let's double it. Four weeks later, let's change it to that. Well, maybe six, eight months later, they get the right combination. If they knew the neurotransmitter balance at the beginning, they could say, hey, instead of starting with Prozac, let's start with Wellbutrin because the norepinephrine and dopamine are on the low side. Let me build those up because serotonin looks good here. Ooh, all of a sudden, six or eight months of suffering, you just jumped over them, okay? So what I'm teaching, I'll sit there and kind of say that, all right, and I'll look at everybody and say, "Gee, guys, what are you using for biomarkers to um, <clears throat> to uh, guide your prescription of nutraceuticals or pharmaceuticals?" You know, and it's one of those great moments when you're a teacher because you're standing there up on stage and you're waiting, and all of a sudden it becomes total silence, and then you hear crickets because then you look at them and say, "I know what you're using. Nothing. You're guessing." You're yelling at me for using biomarkers, and you're using nothing. Okay, so get off my back and start treating your people correctly because if there's a way that can shorten that, let's face it, guesswork in utilizing uh, neuropsychiatric medications, okay, if you can shorten that and, and target it better, then you might want to use uh, what I have for you, okay? So uh, I did get, there are some, did some research right here uh, for you guys who like research about uh, the efficacy of neurotransmitter studies. Um, urinary neurotransmitters on page 34, page 35, this is the Townsend letter, which if anybody doesn't know the Townsend letter, they print the truth. Okay, I will tell you how good they are. Uh, they recently tore apart Argentin-23, which is a colloidal silver. The scientists who created it presented them with the research the Townsend letter did something that I've never seen before happen, ever. They printed a full-page retraction and even put it in their index. When it, when, by the way, anybody 
prints a retraction. It's on page 887 in type that is minuscule that nobody can read. These people realized that they went down the wrong path and opened themselves up and said, look here, we were wrong. Here's the retraction. Made my respect for them go right through the roof. Okay? So, uh, the little girl we were talking about is on page 36. You see that her dopamine is quite high. Anything above that 80% is high. The glutamate was high, as is the norepinephrine. Okay, so if you visually look at it, she had more excitatory neurotransmitters than inhibitory neurotransmitters, and that's the classic idea of hallucinations. Now, hallucinations are not always dopamine. Okay, you have to think of it as excitation. I have gotten rid of hallucinations just by giving people phenylated GABA and L-theanine to bring down their glutamate and bring up their GABA. Okay, there's also indications here of uh, adrenal fatigue. Okay, so what do we have to do now? We have to find out who's upregulating the nervous system. Okay, what's the root cause? Okay, again, we have to think NEI. And first thing we're thinking of is leaky gut syndrome. She had a bad gut. I think we've talked about leaky gut syndrome, you know, for forever here. Okay, and we all realize that leaky gut syndrome causes inflammation. The microbial involvement, okay? You always have to consider Lyme, co-infections, strep, viruses, parasites. Why are we always considering Lyme? Forget those those maps that you see. Those are the ones that are termed as CDC positive. They have found Lyme in the emperor penguins in Antarctica, okay? The seabirds bring the ticks over. Lyme is everywhere. If you have not been properly checked for, for Lyme, I'm sorry, your doctor hasn't been doing his or her job. Uh, we, we checked this young lady, and she had Lyme, yeast, and HHV6, which is a herpes of the brain. Okay, I used the Western blot for Lyme testing from MDL Labs in New Jersey. There's a reason why I use this, because you, you notice here that the MDL says basically it's negative. Okay, but MDL is the only place that will show me the Western blot, and here it is on the next page. Okay. Whereas the, uh, let's just take the top two, the bottom one of the top two is the band locator, which is Borrelia bugdorferi, which is Lyme, and then the patient's the upper, the upper band. The computer only read one band because the computer logic says if that band is 60% or more of the, band, of the band locator, I'll call it positive. But my eyes, and I'm not blind, I can see a whole mess of other bands. And in the IgM, same thing. It read no bands, but I saw three. Okay, so this young lady had Lyme. And this is the benefit of being able to look at the actual test. Okay? And I followed it up with a, something called the Lyme ITT test from uh, neuroscience. And this was to test the actual cytokines. They stimulate uh, the blood to see if it'll produce the, uh, the biomarkers. And uh, even if you can't read it, look at the bottom one. The baseline is zero. And the stimulated ones, you see reaction. The kid has Lyme. Uh, so the thought is, can leaky gut syndrome lead to immune upregulation or dysregulation, uh, and could the numerous food allergies um, cause increases in catecholamines and hallucinations? Can Lyme and HHV6 attack the neural cells? Can that cause an increase in catecholamines and hallucinations? Can yeast overgrowth cause increased cause increased levels of aldehydes? Combined with the NAT2 NAT2 SNPs, can get, can that cause an increase in catecholamines and hallucinations? And the answer is, of course. So these are the things you treat, okay? We put her on a gluten-free, casein-free, and soy-free diet. Uh, we started repairing the GI tract. You notice a little star there at the time 
right now was paying a lot of attention to oxalis at the time I treated her, oxalis were not on the radar. Okay, I gave her the DAL enzyme to help break down the histamine, gave her probiotics, gave her phenylated GABA, gave her L-theanine, and we went after the bugs. Okay, I was co-treating with an integrative uh, pediatrician. When it came time to treat the bugs, the integrative pediatrician wanted to put a PICC line in the young lady and do rotating antibiotics. Um, I gave the uh, parents uh, alternatives and, you know, the pros and the cons, and the parents chose uh, my particular method of treatment, which I won't be mentioning here, okay, which we did for six weeks and two months. Two months after, I redid the test and everything was gone, and all of her symptoms were gone, okay? And on the next page, you see my little Alyssa. I do have permission to use her name. At eight years old, her life was going to be on antipsychotic medicines. Where she's giving me a big hug is when I was uh, lecturing in uh, Louisiana, and she came to visit. Her hallucinations were a downstream effect of the neural excitation secondary to the infections. And um, on the right-hand side, she's now 12. Actually, she'll be 12 in about a week. Okay? And I just heard from her mom. She's a straight-A student. You know, she only has a little bit of a gut problem if she doesn't eat correctly. And she's perfectly fine. Okay? This was worth all the consideration. Okay? So what have we learned tonight that I've been yammering for an hour? Okay, that neurotransmitter imbalances can cause all manner of maladies. Neurotransmitter imbalances can come from numerous root causes that cause root causes singularly or in combination. So you know to look for a thing. It's usually a combination of things. You have to look at everybody individually. Okay, there's no shortcuts. There are no shortcuts. The doctor's got to get over it. Right? There are no shortcuts. Okay, you got to look at people individually. You've got to consider all the parameters of bioindividualized medicine because if you do, you're not going to miss anything, okay? No single parameter, no single thing should be treated in a vacuum. A person should be treated as a whole. So you need a healthcare provider that acts like a detective, okay? And I love my Sherlock Holmes uh, detective thing, okay? Um, for those of you who would like the brain wall, okay, for your, um, for your living room, I mean, I have it on my wall here, okay, you can get your own brain wall poster by going to designyourvictory.com. Okay, that's my son's website, and that's where you can buy it off Zazzle. It's not expensive. You can get all kinds of different sizes, and um, you can have your own. Now, we talked a little bit about Lyme and neurotransmitters, and we have made, um, Sean and I have been doing some uh, negotiating with MDL Labs because we realized that one of the big needs here and around the world is Excellent line testing, okay, and interpreted to tell you whether you got Lyme or not, okay? So I looked at IgenX, and I said, um, I looked at their panels, and their initial line panel contains what you see, uh, Western blot and PCR. PCR is a, a DNA test. And then their master co-infection panel, which has the BCA, you know, it looks pretty good, right? And no, nobody's telling you what's wrong, consultation, and the cost of it is $1,230. So, and they want the money up front, which I think is, like, ridiculous. And I want to even talk about what they're paying overseas. We've negotiated a panel with MDL Labs that gives you all of what you see there, anaplasma, all the BCs, all the Bartonellas, all the forms of Borrelia, a really good... Uh, evaluation of Lyme disease, a Western blot that you can see with your own eyes, 
and we included an interpretive consultation with an experienced, unbiased health care provider. The interpretive consultation is includes a brief history, a review of the testing, and an opinion as to the results and information on how to obtain treatment. Why do I not want people to treat? Because I want everybody out there to be able to learn whether they have Lyme and not be worried that this person is going to drag them into treatment, okay? Because there's a lot of money to be made in Lyme, as in everything else. <clears throat> so the um, healthcare providers I have doing this um, are not going to be doing any kinds of treatment, but are going to be answering questions, and you'll be given uh, information on how to obtain treatment. Uh, this costs, uh, everything together, costs $799, okay, which I think is a still ha almost a little bit more than half of what you're paying for IGNX without the consultation. And for the first 25 people who take advantage of this offer, I'm going to give you uh, a 15% discount. So all you have to do is call the office, we'll set it up, and uh, we're going to, you're going to have the best Lyme testing that there is. Okay. This is for the United States only. Um, I do have it set up internationally. Uh, it does cost more because of FedEx fees and so forth and so on, but uh, that can be discussed individually. Also, we have a neurotr neurotransmitter interpretation panel. And there's some people who just simply want us to go through the uh, neurotransmitter interpretation and want to understand what to start doing. Okay. They, they either have a doctor or they just this is just a facet of what they want. So. Uh, what I did was take um, one of the better neurotransmitter tests associated with the consultation and uh, put a cost in that is, you know, what our usual consultation, actually half of our consultation cost, and the actual price of the test, which came out to $441. And the first 25 clients that scheduled for this offer are going to get a 15% discount, okay, which I think is better than you're going to get anywhere else in the world because the people interpreting it are going to be Sean Bean, and myself, and as you guys know, my one of my nicknames is the Neurotransmitter Whisperer. Uh, this is how to contact us. Uh, you can contact Sean or I at bioindividualmed.gmail.com or at methylationsupport.com, and that's our phone number. Okay. And for those who uh, want to, here are the evidence-based references for what I spoke about tonight. And uh, right now what I'll do is open up the floor for questions, and the number is 646 595-2277. If you have questions, if you're in the chat room, go ahead and type out your questions. If you'd like to call in, I'll be happy to answer anyone's concerns, questions, or whatever. Okay. So, there's somebody in the 301 area code that's been here for like 39 minutes, so I'm going to see if they wanted to ask a question or they just listen it in. Okay. Hi, Doc. Hi, I'm nice me. person in the three one area code. Three one area code. Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. This is. Did you uh, have a Steve. question in that case? You should yeah. don't mention your full name. Um. Yeah. You you mentioned uh, leaky gut associated with uh, high levels of immunoglobulin, but. There, I've noticed that there have been cases where it's been the opposite. That the leaky gut causes low level of immunoglobulins, that's very true. At that time, when that happens, what you're seeing is the gut stopping working. 
Mm-hmm. A lot of people who've had chemotherapy, if you look at their food allergy testing, it looks like a perfect gut. But what's really going on is their gut simply isn't producing immunoglobulins. Okay, so leaky gut, when it gets to a very terminal point, okay, it gets to a very bad point, the uh, immune system itself, itself is either so overcommitted, okay, that it cannot, um, you know, it cannot respond to the... Um, to the stimulation that it's getting, and that's that's actually a bad thing. Okay, so uh, your point is well taken, Steve. Thanks. Okay, thank you. All right, I see somebody typing in. Okay, maybe another question. If anybody'd like to call again, it is six four six five nine five two two seven seven. Very happy to answer questions for Lyme testing. Do you re- recommend provoking first? If so, then how? Okay. Uh, Lyme testing comes in a lot of different flavors. Okay. The first thing that anybody should do is do the proper, I won't even say screening test, but, you know, do a good screen for, you know, Borrelia, all the Borrelias, okay, because some of the um, provocative tests only test for they're using antigens for Borrelia bugdifori, but not the other Borrelias. Okay, also you want to see if you have co-infections, because sometimes that shortens the distance between two points of figuring out what's wrong. Uh, in our in our panel, we also included, um, oh gosh, uh, Candida and uh, one of the brain parasites, uh, Toxoplasmosis gondii. Okay, uh, I went because I'm beginning to see more and more and more of that. Okay, so uh, MDL was kind enough to add that in. Uh, if you're going to do provocative testing, uh, there are very few companies that will do that. It is a, it is a variant of the MELISA test. MELISA means memory cell, uh, memory lymphocyte immunostimulation assay, where they would take this is the um, they would take your blood, uh, spin out, get the white blood cells, culture out the white blood cells and then put them in little tubes and then expose them to different antigens. This is done for um for metal te- you know, metal allergies and metal hypersensitivities. Uh and then after a couple of days look and uh under a microscope and you can see these big big old white blood cells, okay, that they're responding to the antigens and don't ask me how they do this. They can actually put a little tube in there, take fluid from around the cells. I, I know they can do it. It just it amazes me how one can go about doing this. And they can test it for the cytokines that are specific to that antigen. Now, you can do that with um, with Lyme. Presently, I know that uh, the Neuroscience Corporation does it, but they only do it with Borrelia bugdifori, not the other uh, infections that are out there. I hear it's heading in that direction. I'm sure there are other uh, companies out there doing something similar, uh, but I wouldn't go to that first. Um, one of the reasons you might want to go to that is that if all your testing is negative and you have a high index of suspicion, these tests are testing the memory cells, and it will tell you by the amount of memory cell activity will tell you the degree of exposure you've had to the offending organism. So if you get this massive response, you know that you're, you've got Lyme and it's hiding, okay, because Lyme will hide, okay? If you have minimal response, you may have had the... You may have had Lyme, and if you've treated it, it may have been successfully treated. Okay, you're just looking at, 
you know, some residual uh, memory cell activity, okay? And really only a physician or a, a good trained healthcare provider can tell the difference because you've got to correlate several different tests and history. Hope I answered your question. Come on, guys. This is my favorite subject, neurotransmitters. Somebody asked me a good question. Okay, you certainly don't want me yammering. Okay? <laughs> For years, that's all I did was neurotransmitter balancing. It was great. I enjoyed it. It fixed a lot of people. Okay? And I'm sure there's lots of people out there with, you know, conditions that they don't think are treatable that would like to ask a question. So go for it. No? Okay. Well, we'll give it a couple more minutes. Um, while I'm doing this, let me uh, let you know that we are, our, our new website <laughs> is going to be up within a week, we hope. Okay. Uh, it's brand new. We've got lots of different things that um, – and uh, um, lots of new information – uh, lots of different types of consultations you can afford yourself of uh, so that um, we've had people ask us if um, they can just do a consultation on just 23 and Me because they already have a doctor and they want our input. Uh, and this way they don't feel like they have to uh, go completely under our care. We can, you know, do a um, consultation and uh, tell them, you know, what we're looking at and uh, then their practitioner and they can take it from there, which we don't have a real problem with. Okay, there's loads of other things that we're going to be bringing out and we like your uh, input on the necessities of it. Uh, and here comes another person. Nice person in the 860 area code. Are you there? I am. And what question do you have? Um, my question is in regards to children and thinking about how you, had, you talked about ADHD a little bit. Um, how difficult is it to talk, to look at what is personality, what is truly an ADHD, what is, I mean, how do you pull this apart and, and figure this out? Because, you know, I've had, I have three kids and I know that um, I'm told a, a bunch of different things depending on the practitioner that I go to. <laughs> um, there okay. are, you know, I'm told there's, oh yeah, I see a little OCD. I see a little ADD. Um you know, how do we really pick this apart? Is it through all this lab work? And um, how do I know that some of this is just not my child's personality type, too? Uh, you know, some of this confrontational... Well, I'm, I'm so glad. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, no, no. It's just as they get, they age, and, you know, we, we hear that's just a, an 11-year-old boy. And um, so how do we weed this apart, and how do we pick this apart and know that we're not being too anal about something, that, you know, you go, kind of go with your gut feeling, it's your child, so you know when something's kind of not right. But it's hard because you don't know which direction to go in. I am grateful beyond grateful that you called, Okay. Uh, you've asked and answered uh, your own question, and I'm going to show you how you <laughs> asked and answered it, okay? Uh, first off, yes. Uh, do boys have their – when do boys have their worst time? Usually around 11, 12, 13, okay? Uh, mm -hmm. When do girls have their worst time? From 11 years old to about 65. Okay, that's the <laughs> standard joke, all right? <laughs> uh, how do you know the difference? The first order of business is what does your mommy intuition tell you? If your mommy intuition, you have three children, and your mommy intuition says there's something wrong, then, my dear, there is something wrong. 
Okay. And that's the first thing. I'm, I'm the only doctor you'll ever meet that listens to mommy intuition because it tells me whether something is, you know, if I'm on the right track or not. That's number one. Number two, depending on what symptomatology you're looking at and what the history is, uh, you have a kid who does a lot of camping. What do you think you're going to suspect? Okay. What are things that might upregulate the system? You, this is where history comes in. You listen okay. about a, a young boy who was, had no trouble at birth. He was a good baby. You know, even after his immunizations wasn't a problem, you know, he started school, he was doing pretty good. And then, you know, he uh, went to grammar school. And then as he hit middle school, uh, he started getting aggressive. Okay. And then he started getting aggressive uh, to the point that he was fighting and he just wasn't being himself. So you have to start looking, is is that a purely psychological thing? Is, has there been any kind of psychological trauma, head traumas? Uh, was he on the football team? Did he get, um, you know, ill? Did he, uh, you know, did he get a big rash and it, you thought it was treated? This is where history comes in. Okay. Then you can hone it, you can hone it by the history and say, hmm, my index of suspicion is high here. Okay, and you start that's how you do your testing to elucidate your suspicion, not to treat the test, but to elucidate your suspicion. Uh knowing what it is then you know how to start fixing it. Now there are certain things you can do with somebody who's really, really highly uh upregulated, highly irritated. Okay, you can give them you can probably uh, safely give them phenylated GABA. Um, I wouldn't mess around with the re- the other um, uh, amino acid precursors because sometimes high serotonin, low serotonin looks like the same thing. High dopamine, low dopamine looks like the same thing. And you always have that probability of giving them, you know, they have uh, you know heterozygous uh, MTH or RC six seven seventeen. You want to give them methylfolate and all of a sudden the back of their head blows off. Okay, because they overmethylate quickly. Okay, it's uh it's a some of it's a judgment call, some of it you t- most of it you take on history and you follow a good logical course guided by the mother who says, This is where I think this is going. There's something wrong with my child that doesn't make sense to me. And that's my first stop. Okay? And then okay. we go back to birth Okay, we go back to, let's say you're a mom who lived in a, in a farming community that got sprayed with pesticides a lot. You know, there's something that, that rings bells there with me. You know, if he was a good baby and then, you know, he got an immunization and then, you know, had a lot of difficulties, okay, well, then I know what pathways to start looking at that might be, that might cause a cascade effect. You know, if he was in a farming community, got exposed to a lot of Roundup, and glyphosate, I know that his gut is going to be destroyed, okay? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's going to cause a massive amount of upregulation. And the oppositional defiance disorder, the, um, you know, yes, I have three sons myself, okay? Mm-hmm. And I used to love, I used to love, you know, playing referee, okay? <laughs> My youngest son would, like, be running down the stairs, would trip and fall. My middle boy would be laying on the couch watching TV. He'd go, mm! walk over to his brother and punch him. Sounds like my house. (laughs) There you go. Some of it is just being boys. Right. But you know the difference. Even if it were your first child and you're a little nervous, you know the difference. In your heart, you know the difference. 
Okay? Okay. So when you say there's something to be looked at, there's something to be looked at, and then it's on the healthcare practitioner to help you sort it out. Okay, and this is what I do for a living, literally sorting it out. But let me tell you something. If you feel like there's something wrong, it's better to go after it early than go after it late. When damage has occurred, more psychological damage, more physiological damage, okay? And, of course, you know, I will tell you that the trend that I'm seeing is that um, people are turning to drugs and alcohol at an earlier age, as early as nine. mm -hmm. That is my my fear is just patterns of addiction and things that I see where, Mm -hmm. yeah, that is my fear. Um, If you have addictions, well, I just, I think, I'm sorry. (laughs) No, no, go ahead. No, it's just been, that is a fear of mine. I I think just as a society, we're seeing it happen younger and younger, and they're exposed to these things at such a younger age that they're not understanding it fully. And then, you know, with everything else combined, um, the way that they make their choices, you just talked about the prefrontal cortex, you know, I mean, it it just is this snowball effect, I think. It, it is a snowball effect, and, it, and the contributing factors are as follows. Number one, we, we have the GMO problems, the glyphosates, and so forth. We have um, the microbial issues that some people, you know, are not paying attention to. You know, you know there's Lyme is everywhere. Okay, the common infections are over there, too. We live in an, an excitotoxic society. When I was a child, on Sunday, there were only two things open, the church and the bakery. Okay, and then they used to turn the TV off they, they, at midnight. You couldn't watch TV anymore because all you'd see was beep. <laughs> That's right. The station just said, we'll see you tomorrow, you know. <laughs> now we live in a society that is constantly stimulating, yep. constantly, you know, you, you know, you sleep because of light. When the light goes down. That's when the supercosmic nucleus starts, you know, you, you stop producing glutamate and the pineal gland starts pumping out some melatonin. Okay, the only uh, set of people in the United States that don't have insomnia are the Amish because they don't have the electric lights. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're fighting numerous excitatory things and it is not unusual for these excitatory factors to express as OCD, ODD, ADHD, yada, yada, yada. Okay. Now, remember that we put labels on things. Mm-hmm. Um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, in his, uh, as uh, writing for Sherlock Holmes, always said that it's a, uh, it's a capital mistake to theorize without data. But the phrase sounds like this. It's, an, it's a capital mistake to theorize without data because insensibly you will twist facts to suit theories instead of twisting theories to suit facts. Hmm. Okay? And what we have in our society are a set of theories. We call them diagnoses. And we shove everybody into them because we live, our medical system is algorithmic. In other words, if I give you a number and a diagnosis, I know what to do. But that is that diagnosis is not a diagnosis. It's not a root cause. It's a It's a syndrome. So, like I was talking about with ADD, if you have low phenylethylamine and low norepinephrine and you give the person the medicine or the, pre- or the proper uh, uh, amino acid precursors, it's going to be miraculous. But if you have an upregulated system that you add amphetamine to, 
the back of the head's going to blow off. Okay, how do you know the difference if you're just looking at symptoms? I have an eight-year-old girl that was diagnosed with ADD. Okay, at Johns Hopkins, by the way, and the Cleveland Clinic, and the local <laughs> doctors. And mom brought her in. I looked at the neurotransmitter test. Said, "Tell me about the hallucinations." You know, she said, "What?" I said, "Tell me about the hallucinations." The dopamine's off the chart. You know, she said she always talks about the guys in her head. Well, she's eight. You still have guys in your head. Not really. She had a mermaid that took took baths with her. Okay, which is a cool thing if you're eight years old, you know. But I asked her, I said, little girl, I'm not going to mention her name. I said, uh, when people get on you and not paying attention, what are those voices doing? He said, Dr. Jess, sometimes those voices are so loud, I can't hear a thing. Wow. Her ADD was schizophrenia. Okay, what's hallucination? All you have to do is look. All you have to do is think. Take a damn history. Okay, listen to mom. Mom, you listen, my office is not in the most pre- prestigious place. I take, I give people 10% off if they can find me. You know, I'm serious. <laughs> okay, you found me, you get 10% off, good. You know, all right? I'm not like one of those real hoity-toity places, you know, I'm like, you've got to really look for me, okay? But to be perfectly honest, they came from several hours away to sit down so I could sit there and look at them, and, you know, and this young lady's the cutest thing on two legs. You know, I gave her one bear, two bears, and I said, you want access to my wife? And she said, uh-huh. <laughs> and answered my questions and guess what now we know and you know something I did this testing and guess what it's Lyme it was Lyme disease she's being treated for that she's fine now she's nine she's fine that's amazing if there's something wrong with your child you go with that and you fight tooth and nail until somebody gives you satisfaction Mm -hmm. and you use the same intuition to say yes we're on the right course and I don't care whether it's me you talk to or anybody else until you get satisfaction, okay, until that mommy intuition says, yes, we're on the right course, okay, you don't stop until you hit that. If there's something wrong here, there's something wrong. Don't ever doubt yourself. Thank you so much. You're most welcome. I appreciate it. You too. Bye-bye. You're welcome. There's a few more questions here. Let me go up. Um, Someone is asking, I've done the Western Bot with... Band 43 positive, but because I didn't have over nine band positive, they said it was negative for Lyme. That's the CDC criteria. I'm currently doing IV chelation for heavy metal. Can hot, can Lyme hide under... Okay, that can hide... Uh, well, you can have symptoms of Lyme and it'd be heavy metal poisoning. Um, yes. Um, I don't like IV chelation because it not only pulls out the heavy metals, it pulls out all the trace minerals. Uh, having one band positive, uh, that's the reason I like to look at um, what I like uh, this particular lab is because I can see if there are other bands positive. So a lot of times one band positive can mean you have Lyme. Uh, so I think, should I wait till I lower in metals? I, I can't tell you. Oh, wait, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm working my way up here. Alrighty. Um, should I wait until you're lower in metals? Uh, that's a clinical decision that I can make on a on a radio show. Would you work with someone who does the um, uh, CIBM panel but hasn't been a patient previously? Of course. You know the reason that I created this panel was so that people could have access to good Lyme testing and interpretation. You don't have to treat with us, and you don't have to be a prior patient. Okay. I, it, it occurred to Sean and I that there's a ton of people, okay, that are out there that don't know 
uh, whether they have Lyme or not, and need to know. And then, or would I require them to pay the 500 and go through the patient history? The Lyme panel works is that I'm going to, we're going to be doing a brief history, okay, uh, going through the testing. And brief history is going to be a little more brief than a little more extensive than brief, okay, and so that you know we have a good idea of what's going on. I'll give you an answer of whether Lyme or the co-infections are, are your major root cause and give you options of treatment. Should you decide to treat with us because you wanted to, um, that, you know, you'd be, you would be given a, a heck of a discount because you, know, you would only need to go follow-up treatment because we've already started. <laughs> you know, so no, we're not looking to double dip. Um, and this is new, so if you go to my website, uh, it's going to be a little confusing, okay, until we upgrade the website. Uh, right now, uh, what we would like people to know is that uh, you can get good Lyme testing and have someone sit with you and interpret it in light of your history and in light of the good testing uh, at a more reasonable cost than is currently available and not twist your arm to treat with them but give you your options of treatment, um, you know, give you websites to go to and stuff like that. Okay, uh, can Lyme cause chronic constipation? I'm going to tell you right now that Lyme can express in about a thousand different ways. Okay, in this day and age, with any chronic illness, if you're not considering Lyme, you're wrong. Okay, you may not have it, but if you're not considering Lyme and the co-infections and everything goes along with it, okay, due to the ubiquitous nature and it's our worldwide, you know, traveling and so forth, oh my gosh, okay, uh, and um, something about high in lead, aluminum, cadmium. Um, again, some of the stuff I can't answer because I'm looking at it in a vacuum. Uh, hopefully I uh, answered your question adequately. No, we're not trying to, uh, you know, we're trying to facilitate people getting proper care, not, you know, drag them into the office screaming and kicking. Okay. Um, most people will tell you that. At very first, I tell them I don't have an ego. If you treat with me, great. If you choose a different course of treatment, I will always be here for you. And many people have chosen other courses and have looped around later on, months later, years later, and said, you know, I tried this, 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 and this, and this. I'm really tired. What have you got for me? And I don't get upset about it, okay? It is a, you know, that's what, a, that's what we lack. We lack the old family doctor that you could go to and say, what do I do? Okay, and bioindividualized medicine has been created to recreate, to reestablish the healthcare provider that looks at everything, or more of a generalist, and somebody you can trust and depend on. That's why on our referral list, there are so few people, because until somebody reaches that level where they have that level of commitment and training and experience, they don't get on our referral list. Okay, and it's, believe me when I tell you, Okay, we're the only people that are going to these lengths to make sure that you have access to healthcare providers that really care. Okay, and have the training and are willing and are experienced. It's easy to just take a course and go on a list. Okay, but nobody gets on my list until I would send my mom to them or one of my children to them. Okay, and boy, you got to demonstrate something real special and know your stuff to get on my list. Okay, so anyway, uh, there's about two minutes and 22 seconds left. Does anybody else have any kind of question that I can answer? 
Okay, and feel free to ask anything. Tonight I tried to be my uh, my normal jovial uh, Dr. Jeff self, um, and I don't know how well I did because uh, today a uh, little girl who I um, had the uh, pleasure of advising her healthcare provider, at least being uh, one of her men. Uh, Healthcare providers, mentors. This little girl had um, had a uh, inoperable brain tumor, and uh, unfortunately, um, just shy of her four, fourth birthday today. Um, just shy of her, four birth, her fourth birthday, which was the end of this month, she passed away. And um, I guess no matter how hard you try, um, you know we're only. Um, we can only do our best, and um, I know the healthcare provider who I was advising is uh, devastated. So for this little one, instead of our our usual way of saying goodbye, I'm going to um, honor her. I don't have permission to use her name, so let's just pray for all those little ones who um, shouldn't be gone, uh, but are. And let's face it. There's no reason why, and I don't know that we're allowed to know the reasons why. So let's just uh, pray for her family and pray for her soul. Uh, whatever your belief system is, um, you can spend um, a couple of seconds um, just having a good thought for the family. Okay, it's the uh, worst thing in the world to lose a child, especially at that age. So <clears throat> I uh, like to close with amazing grace then. During the summer, we're going to be uh, interviewing some of the healthcare providers on our referral list. You get to know them a bit better, and you can ask them questions and uh, you know get comfortable that these people really do know what they're talking about. And uh, as always, I'm always here to ask uh, questions, discuss all. I still do my 15-minute get acquainting consult, and. Um, I just want the family of this young woman to know that uh, you're in my heart and my good thoughts. Uh, not an easy thing to lose a little one. So, everyone have a good week. Uh, remember, during the summer, we do uh, podcasts every other week. And um, I'll talk to you soon. Email me with any questions you might have. 
Dr. Jess Online at the Center of Center for Bioindividualized Medicine here in Southeast Pennsylvania. Saying good night. <laughs>